we as a church are privileged to support more than 45 missionary families or organizations overseas. A number of those whom we support are found in Athens, Greece. In fact, our largest contingent, um, our largest concentration, I realized, is there in Athens. You know that we support Allison, um, who's from us, as she's over there. Um, she works with Tim and Alex. They work in the anarchist community. We support George in Glyfada. All of um, those guys have been here to preach our missions conference. We support Aryidis and Dina. Aryidis with the Greek Bible College and Dina with Damaris House to trafficked women. And Pastor, Pastor Manosher, the Iranian church plant. And then Eric and Mark and others whom you know. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ does not sit back and play defense. It moves forward offensively, armed with the gospel of grace and the love of Jesus. And to proclaim this good word to us this morning, we invite to our pulpit um, Yotis Kantartsis. Yotis, I'll ask if you'll come up. Um, he is here with Nopi. Um, they live right there in the heart of Athens. And many of you know George. George was here for a year and a half. That is their son. He just returned after studying here to finish his studies there online um, and to help in the ministry. Um, we love George and we are thrilled to have his parents here with us this morning. They have two other sons there who live um, in Athens and they have an amazing ministry there, um, including um, or which touches many areas of the society and the city. Yotis is one of those leaders whom God has raised up to lead a church planting movement, both there in Greece, but also throughout Europe. He and Opie lived in Boston for a period of time as he studied at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He's also studied at the University of Athens and the University of Thessaloniki. Um, he has earned degrees, a uh, number of degrees, his Master of Divinity and his PhD. Um, Yotis is now the pastor of the Greek Evangelical Church, the first Greek Evangelical Church there in the heart of Athens, right in the shadow of the Acropolis. It's the mother church of all the other church plants and ministries which are going on there that we're involved with. Yotis is a mentor to many. He's passionate and he's focused. He's winsome and he's fun to be with. And so we're thrilled to have you here with us. Before I give you the pulpit, I'm going to ask you one question because I know you won't answer it during your sermon. The funds that go toward um, your ministry, what will those go for? Yeah, one of the, first of all, welcome. Thank you. It's a great thing to uh, be here, but I'll say that during the sermon. But as you were talking about Boston, I said, do you want me to use the Bostonian accent or no. the Greek accent? The Greek accent. All right, <laughs> I'll keep the Greek accent. Uh, uh, well, um, uh, what uh, we're talking about is what we call the Athens Church Planting Hub. Uh, our vision is to create a church planting movement in southern Balkans. Uh, you know, just to help you out with geography, Albania, North Macedonia, Serbia, Bulgaria, Cyprus, perhaps the European side of Turkey, and of course Greece. So our heart is to uh, raise up uh, young leaders who will be trained in Athens, as Athens 
Um, he has become a hub of church planting, so they will provide training for them so that they can go back to their countries and um, do church planting in those countries. Okay, that's great. Um, amazing young men and women that God's raised up there in Athens and who have come to Athens to, to study, and um, we're excited about what God is doing. Um, as Yotus gets started, I'm going to ask Chuck Berry to come up and read the scripture passage for today from Matthew 5, City on a Hill. passage is uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 16, if you want to follow along. Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, before we uh, start with uh, the passage that we have in front of us, let me uh, thank you for being uh, a home away from home for our George. Uh, he sends his greetings, uh, and uh, he had a wonderful time with you, and uh, that was really a great blessing in his life. And uh, also, I send greetings from, uh, uh, I bring greetings from Alison, who is one of yours, who is serving with us uh, back in Athens, and with many other people whom you know and they know you. And I think that's the beauty of our relationship with the Orangewood, that there are so many connections that uh, it feels like uh, coming home, it feels like a family. And uh, I was really excited when uh, Joe, uh, suggested this uh, theme, City on a Hill and Matthew 5, because uh, much of our inspiration for what we do in Athens comes actually from that very passage. So we use two expressions to describe our mission uh, as a church in Athens. Uh, one expression is that uh, uh, in the city for his glory. In some ways, that summarizes what we just read in the uh, final verses of our scripture passes. In the city, 
for his glory. Or another expression that we use is that we are the city of God in the city of men. We are the city of God in the city of men. Both of them, they get their inspiration and grounding in that very passage. So I'm really excited to be able to open the scriptures in front of you as we study God's word and trying to see what is the mission of the church and how the church can accomplish her God-given mission. And we'll, I mean, I'm a good Presbyterian, three points. So we'll see three, uh, three main points. Uh, I mean, there are many things that we can find in this passage, but we'll concentrate on three. The first thing is this, that in order for the church to fulfill her mission, the church needs to be the city of God in the city of men. Both conditions need to be met. Uh, you need to be the city of God, but also we need to be in the city of men. And the temptation in the history of the church has been to choose between the two. Uh, sometimes the church is becoming the city of God and does great job, but uh, the temptation there is isolation. Like, uh, we don't want to have to do anything with the world. We are the city of God after all. So sometimes we have nothing to do with the world, so much so that the end, we have nothing to do with the world. Okay, so one temptation is the isolation. The other temptation is assimilation. The other temptation is to emphasize that we need to be part of this world, to be in this world, and we do that in, to that extent that the end there is no difference. So we're not the city of God. So in order for the church to have a mission, you need to have both conditions. We need to be the city of God, a distinct identity, but we need to be in the city of men. Now, let me elaborate a little bit more on these two temptations. The first one, as we said, is to be the city of God to the point that we isolate ourselves. Uh, to be separated from the world to the point that we have no connection to the world. And why do we do that? Uh, if we read our passage in verse 11, we read, blessed are when blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Pressure and persecution may be a reason why the church isolates herself, protects herself. I was saying earlier in the Sunday school class that evangelicals in Greece are 0 0.2, 0.3%, okay? And people have all sorts of negative stereotypes about you. And uh, uh, responding to a question, I said, uh, in order to understand what that means, is the thing of a religious group in your own context in Orlando, which is 0.2%. Typically are people that you feel that they're quite weird, suspicious. If your kids started associating with them, you'd be really concerned. So that's who we are. And when you face that kind of context and when, you know, people think negatively about you, it's very easy to say, you know what, I'll be the city of God. I'll protect myself. I'll develop a fortress mentality. I'll hide behind four walls so that I don't have any contact with them. And that was as I said, the temptation of the church through her history. There is a very nice book uh, written by a New Testament professor. He's with the Lord right now. His name is Larry Hurtado. 
uh, the title of the book is Destroyer of the Gods, Destroyer of the Gods. In this book, he tries to explain how a typical and average Roman would perceive Christians in the first three centuries before Christianity became mainstream, okay? How would they see them? Okay, here are some words summarizing the view of an average Roman for the Christians. Silly, stupid, irrational, simple, wicked, hateful, obstinate, antisocial, perverse. So if people think of you like that, the tendency is to isolate yourself. Okay, to create a community where, you know, you pat each other on the back and you carry on, you isolate yourself from the world. When I arrived 20 plus years ago in the church I'm serving, two elders gave me an advice, different advice, the same idea. One of them said to me that the former senior uh, minister used to say, Lathe Viosas is Greek. Uh, if you know Epicurus, this philosopher, he used to say that, which means live secretly. Okay, this is a good advice to a new pastor, right? Okay, live secretly, or in other words, hide. Uh, the other elder came to me and he said, uh, okay, let me give you an advice. Again, it came from the same pastor. He said to me, okay, here is the deal. Don't bother them, the world, so that they don't bother us. Imagine if that becomes your mission statement. <laughs> Let's not bother them so that they don't bother us, okay? So there are many churches that they feel that, okay, the world is a place that does not... Of course, that may be difficult to, for you to grasp here in, in the South. But you may come to a point. It seems that things are progressing that way. And, and, and the truth of the matter is that the church, in most of her history, and in most parts of the world, has been a minority, Okay, so the tendency when you, you, you are in an environment like that is to isolate. That is to be the city of God, but with no contact with the city of man. On the other hand, there is the opposite temptation. And that is to be the city of man, to be in the city of man, but to that extent that you forget your identity. Uh, again, you don't have a mission. Okay, if there is no distinctiveness, there is no mission. If you are not the city of God in the city of men, there is no mission. The full title of that book, Destroyer of the Gods, is this. Early Christian distinctiveness in the Roman world. That needs to be there in order to have a mission. That we enter into the world but having a distinct identity. And if I can summarize some points of that book, Christians had a very distinct uh, identity. Like in the Roman Empire, you can believe anything you want. There are many people who naively say, oh, you know, the New Testament comes from another, you know, time and age. We're, we live in different times. Actually, we live in pretty much the same times, like the ancients at that time. Pluralism. You can believe anything. Relativism. You can believe anything. But here are the Christians who come and they're exclusive. You know, the Romans, you know, they don't care whatever you believe, what kind of deity you worship, as long as you are open-minded, okay? But Christians come and they say, no, we're exclusive. All other deities are idols. They're non-existing, and we'll identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, Christians. No other religion has a name 
like Aphrodisians or something like that. But these are the Christians. They're so attached and exclusively belong to their God. So, uh, as I said, the other extreme is to be in the world and assimilate with the world and, and, and lose our distinct identity. And the Bible describes that, Jesus in this passage describes that through a metaphor. Uh, he talks about the salt that loses its taste. Okay? Now, this is your time for your Greek lesson. Uh, there is a very particular word which is very interesting that is being used in this passage. Uh, definitely, the, the meaning is the soul losing its saltiness or the, the soul losing its taste. But literally, the word that is being used in the Greek text is about the salt that loses its weight, mind. You know, getting, going crazy. And I think there is something very interesting here. Like a salt that has no taste is what? You're supposed to be the salt of the earth. Difference. But if you're a salt without saltiness, you are what? Earth. Dirt. Okay? So a salt that loses its distinctiveness from the earth makes no sense. Lost her mind. So if I am to summarize and rephrase all of that, let me put it like this. A church that makes sense in the eyes of the world makes no sense in the eyes of the Lord. Let me re repeat that. A church that makes sense, like the soul that loses its saltiness, its distinctiveness. A church that makes sense in the eyes of the world makes no sense in the eyes of the Lord. When the Lord sees a church which is not distinct, says, have you lost your mind? What do we mean by that? Let me give you an illustration from our experience in Greece. In the 1990s, Greece received one million Albanian migrants, economic migrants. Now, you may don't understand the significance of this number, but let me tell you that Greece is a country of about 10 million. So we receive 1 million of Albanian immigrants, okay? So there are many communities in Athens nowadays, which is kind of 50% Albanian immigrants and 50% Greeks. In one of those areas, we have ministry. This is where we planted our last church plant, our last church. But we have been in that area for a long time, having a community center. So in that area, in that community center, we do a lot of work with Albanian kids, kids of Albanian immigrants. And one of the things that we do, the Center 68, one of the things that we do is that we help tutoring young kids so that they stay in school and they finish school because their parents couldn't help them, so we do a lot of tutoring. So here is a real uh, situation. There is this guy, he's the CFO of a big company, like a financial a manager of a big company, very rich, from our church. He drives his luxurious car in that neighborhood. He wears, you know, he's dressed up like me. I'm perhaps the only one uh, with a tie. And David. Uh, well, uh, uh, so he drives, he comes into this place to do math to a 12-year-old girl who is the daughter of an Albanian immigrant. Now, if you were to ask an average Greek, okay, 
Here you have a very wealthy Greek CFO. And here you have the daughter of an Albanian migrant. What do you think may be the relationship of these two? What would be a relationship that would make sense? People would say, and I'm telling you, okay, the mother of this Albanian girl does house cleaning, serves, does house cleaning for this wealthy Greek man. Okay? That makes sense in the world. But in the church, is the reverse. In the church, things don't make sense. Because in the church, this wealthy Greek, you know, financial director serves the Albanian migrant. So that is what makes the church having a mission into the world, okay? So these are the two temptations. And the first condition is that for the church to have a mission, the church needs to be the city of God, distinct identity, alternative community in the city of men. Neither isolation nor assimilation. Now, let's go to our second point. For the church to fulfill her mission, we need a community of faith. We cannot do it on our own. The second condition is that we need each other. We need a community of faith. Now, if you, you know, you have uh, the text in front of you. If you see verses 13 and 14, these two verses, they start with a pronoun. You, okay? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And in the Greek structure of the sentence, according to the Greek syntax, this is an emphasis, okay? Uh, it's an emphatic point. You are the salt of the earth. You are. So Jesus is trying to underlie something. So why this repetition? What is the point of this double repetition of this pronoun? Why this emphasis? So I think there are different things that we can think of. First of all, um, think, uh, think with me this. In verse 11, we just read what the people, you know, the unbelievers think of the church. As we read, you know, let me remind you what we read in that book. You are silly, stupid, irrational, simple, wicked, antisocial, perverse. Okay. So, so that's what the world says for you. But when we come to verses 13 and 14, God says, but in my view, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Okay. So they see and they view you like this, but I'm saying that you are the light of the earth, you, you, the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth. So in order for us to engage in mission, we need to decide whose opinion matters. Okay. Does it matter what others think of us? Or does it matter what God thinks of us? And when I'm talking about missions, uh, they invite me to speak to different churches here in the United States on Mission Sunday, and people expect, expect me to talk about, you know, sending missionaries or, or going overseas, and do, which is a great thing. But I always talk about how you can be missional in your neighborhood. Because one of the things that I have realized is that if you really want to engage in a healthy way in world missions, you need to start from your own neighborhood. Okay, so that's why my emphasis is not how you're going to go to the ends of the earth, but I mean, which you should, but 
my main emphasis is how you are going to be a witness in your neighborhood, in your school, in your work, in your everyday life. So the first thing, the emphasis there in the you is that they say this about you, but okay, this is my opinion. So we need to choose whose opinion matters, who is our audience, whose opinion is important for us. The other explanation of this repetition is this. Uh, this image of a city on a hill that beams light that attracts the nations, it's an image that we find in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah. Uh, uh, definitely in chapter 2 and in chapter 60, we have the exact same image. Uh, Jerusalem there, Jer restored Jerusalem, is supposed to be a city on a hill that light comes out of it and nations come, you know, because they're attracted uh, to the light of Jerusalem. But here, what Jesus says to this fellowship of fishermen is something really subversive and radical. Because in Jesus' teaching, it is not anymore Jerusalem, Jerusalem with its palace, Jerusalem with its temple, Jerusalem with its priesthood, Jerusalem with its wealth, Jerusalem with its resources. No, it is not Jerusalem anymore, but it's you. You are the city. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the, of the, of the world. So many times uh, we see ourselves indefinitely uh, in a context like Athens, the 0.2% context. We look at ourselves and we say, we? And God says, you. And many times we don't believe him. That's why he needs to repeat that. And he says, yes, you, not the powerful, not something which is fancy, not something which is glorious. But yes, my choice is that you will be my witnesses. But there is another aspect to this emphasis. So we're exploring why twice in this emphatic position, Jesus says, you are, you are. And the third explanation is this, and that is our second point, is, and of course you need to know a little bit of Greek to understand that, not much, uh, to realize that this pronoun here is in plural. So it's not you, but it's you, plural. And that is one of the most significant things that we need to realize. And let me tell you that this is not, uh, you know, in the West, we like to see uh, ourselves as, what is the name of that, uh, Rambo. You know, I'll just go and conquer the world by myself and I don't need anyone. But it's so important that, that when we talk about mission, it's plurality, it's community. Think about this, the very notion of a city. So you are a city. So it's, it's, it's the community of believers. So we need to work together. We need to work together. And let me give you an example how that happens and what we mean by that. Uh, last week, uh, there was this incident that actually even newspapers wrote about it. In the neighborhood where we planted the church, remember the neighborhood with the Albanians and Greeks, uh, there was a refugee family that was really mistreated and betrayed by a, a, a Greek landlord. Many times we think that all these refugees will come and corrupt us. But let me tell you, we are corrupt already. We don't need them. 
Okay. Sometimes, you know, we have this phobia that these people, they'll come and, you know, and more, again and again and again, we realize, especially in Greece, that, you know, we don't need them and, you know, we do very well uh, being corrupt uh, on our own. So this, this family, actually see this family, they gave money to this landlord. Uh, and there was no written contract and uh, that, that made it to the news. And um, so... Uh, she kicked them out, and they had nothing. They lost all their money, and with anything they had, they were just standing uh, out on the sidewalk, desperate. Okay. Uh, what eventually happened was we were able to house them in one of our, our houses of hope. We have apartments in that very neighborhood where we house refugees. Now, how did that happen? Well, first church, the church I'm pastoring, had the vision to have the houses of hope, to have to provide housing for refugees, okay? So we had the vision. A Presbyterian church in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, had some money, a lot of money, and they gave this money so that we can buy four apartments in that area to house refugees. Uh, our church plant in Exarchia, the anarchist area that Joe mentioned, has a ministry for refugees, and actually uh, they operate two of these four apartments. Orangewood, do you know anything about Church Orangewood Presbyterian? You know something. Orangewood Presbyterian supports our church in Exarchia. And our church plant in Neos Cosmos, in that neighborhood, was there to see all of that and, and orchestrate what happened. So the question is, who did it? The answer is we. And that's the beauty, the beauty of the kingdom of God and the body. This is the plurality. You are together, working together, all of us, we can really make a difference. So first point, in order to fulfill our mission, we need to be the city of God in the city of men. Second, in order to fulfill our mission, we need each other. We need to work together. We need the community, the whole community of faith. Third point, in order to fulfill our mission, we need not only to not only preach the gospel, but most importantly, to let the gospel shape us. Before we preach the gospel to others, we need to let the gospel shape us. Before I show you why we say that, let me tell you this story. Uh, I was sharing earlier, uh, as they asked me what should be something to pray for you, I said, you know, something that you need to pray for us is about our relationships. Working together with people like in an ecosystem of church planning is sometimes very difficult to, you know, I mean, the relationships between the church planters and the people in ministry and all of that. So here we were in a conference, in a city-to-city -city Europe conference, and they asked one of our church planters, Alex, to share a little bit about our church in Exarchia. Now there we did an experiment. We have two co-equal co-workers, which is very difficult. 
you know, uh, two, two church planters working together, and everyone, but everyone, especially all the Americans, they said, you know, that is not going to work. You need to have hierarchy. So we said, okay, let's try. And so anyway, so Alex was invited to say something about uh, the church plant in Exarchy. And as he was walking by me to go up in the stage to speak, I pulled him. I'm kind of the old guy in that ne- you know, network. I pulled him down and said, you know, don't forget to mention Tim. Tim is his co-worker. Okay? And don't forget to mention Tim. And he stares at me and he gives me a look which I didn't like. <laughs> well, he went up at the stage and he said, he started and he said this, he said, well, uh, as we were starting to plant the church, everybody was telling us that working together, having two church planters working together on the same level is not a good idea. Well, they were right. <laughs> and that was like my worst dreams, you know, my nightmares coming true. And I said, geez, what he's talking about? And then after he paused, he said... Uh, yes, we had to let the gospel shape us. We had to preach the gospel to ourselves before we were able. I mean, what, you know, how difficult it is to work together that close. You, could, you know, you need the gospel over and over and over again. So we had to preach the gospel to ourselves before we were able to preach the gospel to the others. And so what is very important in this passage is to see, the, to see this commission that you are the salt of the earth, you are the city on a hill, you are the light of the world, that this mission comes right after the blessing. Uh, if we see the flow of the chapter, uh, it's very important uh, that it starts with the Beatitudes, the blessing, and only then, after he said, you are blessed, you are blessed, you are blessed, only then you say, okay, now this is what you're supposed to do. It starts with who you are in Christ before you know anything about what you're supposed to do for Christ. And it's very interesting that many times we read the Beatitudes in a wrong way. We read the Beatitudes as if it's a list of conditions. If you do that, if you are put in spirit, then you will be blessed. In reality, the Beatitudes is a list of affirmations, meaning it says that, okay, even though you may, you may be poor in spirit, nevertheless, you are blessed because yours, you, yours is the kingdom of God. So the blessing comes first. And let me tell you, my brothers and sisters, that this is the gospel, isn't it? That before Christ expects anything of us, before Christ asks us to do anything for him, the first thing is that he is giving his blessing to us. Well, um, there, is, uh, there is a book written by uh, an Australian uh, pastor in New York, John Tyson. The title of the book is The Burden is Light. There, he's helping us to, to ponder how uh, we minister not for blessing, but out of the blessing. So we don't uh, minister in order to, to get blessing, but since we feel blessed already, then we minister. And again, I say, this is the logic of the gospel. And actually, this is the logic of the gospels, the four gospels, okay? This is the story of Jesus. And um, 
he has a chapter which he calls um, the American Jesus. So he's an Australian, I'm Greek, uh, and we talk about you Americans. But this is true about all of us. Uh, it's very interesting, listen to that. If we were to write the Gospels today, they would be infused with this winner script. They would probably go something like this. Jesus was born of a virgin, a great start. And as a teenager, he was passionate about his father's house. He started his ministry with a prophetic declaration about the kingdom of God, fulfilling truth in a new and spectacular way. He then called disciples, gathered momentum, confronted hypocrisy, healed the sick, raised the dead, and challenged Herod. Then he voluntarily died to become the savior of the world. He rose again in victory, proving to everyone that he was alive, then ascended into heaven. Right before he arrived, the heavens opened and the Father announced, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Is that the story of the Gospels? It seems that it's the exact opposite. Jesus has been living in total obscurity for about 30 years, doing without doing much at that time. And at a certain time, he appears on the scene. He's baptized. And before he did anything, before he healed the sick, before he casted out demons, before he, he comforted the Pharisees, before he uh, fed the crowds, uh, before he went up on the cross, before he was resurrected, before anything, the heavens opened. And the Father's voice was, this is my son, my beloved son to whom I am well pleased. The blessing comes first. And this is the gospel. So in order for us to be on a mission, we really need to grasp the gospel again. Before we're able to preach and give the gospel, we need first to be shaped by the gospel. So, you are blessed. You are blessed. Be a city on a hill. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that many times we are really tempted and we have fallen to that temptation to either isolate ourselves and be a church that cares about herself finding security, finding comfort, and it's all about us. So we confess that. And at the same time, we also confess that many times we are sought that lost its mind and acts in a foolish way. Lord, we pray that you may help us realize the beauty of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you may help us experience this blessedness of being accepted 
by your grace, so that out of that blessedness, we live a life of mission for your glory in the city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.